Welcome to this Centrum podcast. For more podcasts or to join Centrum programs building creativity in community, visit us at centrum.org. I'm Rob Berman, Executive Director at Centrum. At stake in today's episode is a simple question. How can art help wage change? Our guest Richard Ross is an award-winning photographer who turns his lens on the placement and treatment of American juveniles housed by law in facilities that treat, confine, punish, assist, and occasionally harm them. Recipient of grants from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Annie E. Casey, and MacArthur Foundations, Richard Ross has been awarded both Fulbright and Guggenheim Fellowships. In this episode, he talks about his life's work, many books, and traveling exhibitions of the work that continues to see great success while using his images as a catalyst for change. Richard was interviewed on September 21st, 2020, in an online forum by Shaminder Dulay, the visual journalism editor at Crosscut, and an award-winning photo-video journalist himself. Our podcast begins with a brief segment from the PBS NewsHour, featuring Richard's story in his own words. Photographer Richard Ross has documented the U.S. juvenile justice system for the better part of a decade. In tonight's Brief But Spectacular, Ross shares what it feels like to honor the voices of children behind bars. His books, Juvie Talk and Girls in Justice, are available online. I went to a juvenile detention center in Texas, and I was used to photographing architecture, but then all of a sudden, I started talking to a couple of kids there that were very fragile, didn't speak any English. And I realized that I was the conduit for their voice. When I would go into these institutions, I would knock on the door of the cell, I would take off my shoes, I would ask for permission to come in, and then I would sit on the floor of the cell. I would give that child authority physically above me. And these were usually teenagers, and they were isolated, bored, lonely, and somebody interested in paying attention to them, they, they loved it. These kids all live under the umbrella of trauma, poverty, abuse, neglect, and I'm trying to figure out the world where they get the right resources to help them and they don't go into the deeper end of the system. Every one of these children need mental health services. These are kids without a voice from families, without resources from communities, without power, and that's got to change somehow. Getting the images into the hands of the right people to affect change is the battle that I do. The Senate and the House was voting to renew the act that kept children in separate courts. There was an exhibition of my work in the Capitol Rotunda, and then when the actual vote was taking place, Senators Grassley and Durbin both had copies of my book when they were voting. I create these images because data, while it's incredibly important, exists in fluorescent sterility, yearning for a fragile voice to make it comprehensible on human terms. When you have kids from one zip code that are more likely to go to prison than college, then society has failed them rather than they have failed us. So instead of figuring out how to change these kids to fit into our institutions, we have to rearrange our thinking and figure out how our institutions change to fit these kids. You've seen these images. You have a glimpse of who these kids are. Ask yourself, what would you do if this was your kid? My name is Richard Ross, and this is my brief but spectacular take on juvenile injustice in America. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Richard, for joining us tonight, and welcome. Pleasure to be here. Um, I wanted to start us off, actually, uh, tonight kind of with a heavier question, um, but I think it sums up a lot of what you try to get at with your work. We talk about this topic of incarceration a lot of times with juveniles um, in a lot of statistics. And you've talked about this a few times where we lean on the statistics to try to prove to people that there's a problem here uh, for the people who don't believe that there's an issue here to address. 
like we know um, any given day, there's 48,000 youth incarcerated in the U.S. More than two-thirds are 16 or older, but also 500 of them are 12 and younger. Um, and we also know that there's a lot of um, inequalities in the system where certain populations are overrepresented in the prison population as well. Despite these facts, and we've been talking about this for a while, um, you've been working on this for almost 15 years, it doesn't seem like a lot of progress has been made, and we still keep leaning into the data. We still keep leaning into the numbers. And you've spoken about this idea often in, in this video as well that we just watched, trying to break through the numbers and humanize the story through your images. What, what, what did you mean by that when you decided to pick up your camera and what are you looking for when you go into these facilities and talk to the youth? Your question broaches both strategic and tactical. So strategic is I'm looking for the most compelling stories. I'm looking for the stories that are going to break your heart and break my heart, you know, to be able to bear up to listen to these kids and not completely break down with them is the work is punishing. Um, tactically, I go into these facilities and I don't say that casually because uh, going into these facilities may entail 50 emails 50 phone calls or more. And by the time I get in there, I'll try and offer my respect to the juvenile corrections officers and ask them who they think the kids that are going to be the most riveting because they know them intimately. And then I'll also, if they say, well, who are you looking for? I'll say the oldest, the youngest, the status offenders, the ones that you think you're really afraid of and the ones that you think, why is this person here? And I try and get everybody to buy in. And that's an important part of the strategy, getting everybody at every level to buy into it, including the kids, because I'm a stranger to these kids and I'm knocking on their door, asking to share their space and asking them to trust me to share their stories. That actually kind of reminds me, we were talking about the other day, how you approach the, the youth before you even take a picture of them. You mentioned a lot of your early work, you were looking into like this idea of architecture as a form of oppression and how courtrooms are designed, right? We were talking the other day about some courtrooms in Sweden are designed in a circle where the defendant sits on equal level with everyone around them and there is no hierarchy. And then you look at US system and it's approached the bench, which is above you. And it really creates this tension through how courtrooms are designed. And during the time when you started working on this project, you were looking at the architecture of oppression, right? You were, you were looking at how architecture defines power dynamics. And you mentioned something in this video about the first thing you did was you sat on the ground and you put yourself beneath the person that you were trying to talk to. Why was that important for you to do that? Language is critical, so forgive me for correcting my lovely hosts, but it's not oppression, it's the architecture of authority. So it's the location and the way architecture is set up defines how the person exists in the architectural space, but also in society in more broad terms. And in the Swedish law courts in um, Western Sweden, they were designed very early post-war buildings where the prosecutor, the defense, and the tribunal are all in a circle, very much like the United Nations and the Security Council, where everybody is equal, but then there's the horseshoe where some people are more, some nations are more equal than others. So even describing these kids as convicts, you know, when you say, Oppression, no, I'm talking about, the architecture was talking about location. Mm. Uh, so these kids are pre-adjudicated, or even if they're adjudicated, they're not sentenced. Often they are held until they're re-evaluated, unless they're tried as adults. So everything about the language is very nuanced, and you have to be very careful and cautious with these kids. And then, yes doing this work of architecture of authority and realizing that authority exists on high and i very specifically would knock on the doors of these cells i would take off my shoes before i would go in i would ask for permission to go in 
And then I would sit on the floor on the concrete and give these kids authority over me. And very rarely were they looking down at an old white guy. Normally it's a person who's in their 30s or 40s uh, in uniform looking down on them, telling them what to do. So I rejiggered the equation and really made sure I gave them authority. And the first thing I would do is say to them is, I want you to be comfortable here and I want you to say, I don't want to talk about that. And they would say, what, yo, what do you mean? And I would say, just say it so that you know you can say it and nothing bad happens to me or to you. We just move on. Mm -hmm. And giving kids that authority is something that's unusual in their world. Yeah, it sounds like from your interactions, that was not common. You know, they were probably always told what to do, go here, go there, sit in this room. And then to have you come in and give them a choice, you know, what did they tell you in that, in that moment? They were confused by it, but then often, as you know, being a journalist, it's easy to try and interject your own thoughts, but the power of keeping your mouth shut is really great. And these are all teenagers, and they're isolated, and they're lonely, and many of them are afraid, and they're used to posturing if they're in a system too long. And to just be there where you just say, you can remove it. You can get rid of it. And I'm just here to listen to you, dude. It's no big deal. You can tell me what you want. And then normally I would start off a conversation with something as benign as possible by saying, who visits you? Mm. And they would be talking about their family and trying to find out who they are in a really deep sense. Yeah. And you also did speak to some of the families of, of the youth that you interviewed. As much as possible, but it was still the exception rather than the rule. Mm. I, I would always find these people where I would say, there's more here. And a long-form journalism is something I really admire and aspire to. But I also, with this work, I wanted to do a longitudinal study. And I wanted to look at what the system was at a specific moment in time. Earlier in my career, I'm older than dirt at this point. <laughs> Early in my career, I really wanted to use words like, your work is timeless. That was, for some reason, one of the adjectives I wanted. But at some point, I realized I am of my time. And I discovered this issue, and I thought, this is something significant. This is something historical. and if I create this document, I wanted to make it unassailable. I wanted to do the research that proved that this was not the anomaly. This was the rule for how we treated this, these kids in this period of time in this country. Yeah, and you said in there, like, there is this moment. This happens in every project you work on. Um, after you do this work for a while, there's a moment in that work where you realize to yourself, this is not a small thing. This is not a couple of days kind of thing. This is something that I'm going to devote, in your case, um, you know, over a decade to. When is that moment when you kind of had that epiphany that this is something that interests you, that there is something here to talk about, that you do want to spend time researching this? And what are you learning in that process that you want other people to also take away? Luck favors the prepared, but <laughs> that I'm it does. taking the risks. I ended up at the University of California, which gave me healthcare, and I had a pretty remarkable career that I enjoyed that was very rewarding for me on many, many levels. And I felt like uh, I could do something dramatic here. And I was, when I was working on architectural authority, I was in El Paso at a juvenile detention looking at the architecture. Mm -hmm. There were half a dozen kids there with orange jumpsuits that most of them didn't speak English, and I started talking to them. And then I realized I was the conduit for these voices. And it became somewhat of a mission. And I came back from that, and my wife of 50 years, who's very tolerant, and I mapped out to her very ambitiously. I said, I think I could change the world. 
and I think I could change the lives of kids. And this is what I want to do. I want to create an exhibition that will travel, uh, that's unmatted, unframed, uncreated, that's very accessible that I can pick up and can go to any institution at a nominal cost. I want to publish books because the way to change the framing of people in power, which is still primarily older white men, they feel the weight of the book is important. Social media is blossoming. I want to create a social media presence. And I want to act as a conduit for these kids' stories. And I think I could change their lives. I think I could change legislation. I think I could change society. And my wife said, you're out of your mind and do it. <laughs> also, I had the good fortune to get a, a Guggenheim for the Architectural Authority work. And that's an adult lottery ticket. And the university gave me a year off with pay and a lot of support. And I basically was on a plane at least once a week, uh, leaving like on Wednesday, coming back on Sunday night. I would just work endlessly until be there at a juvenile detention center when they open and stay there until they kick me out and transcribe notes until I couldn't take it anymore. And then the next day would be a repeat. Yeah. And you, and some of this work actually did reach the legislative. Um, like you had an exhibit in, um, in the Capitol building, right? It did. And that uh, impacted the OJJDP, the renewal of that legislation to keep, uh, juveniles and adults separate in terms of court. So it basically is the creation of juvenile and family court courts. Uh, so that has some national implication. Both Grassley and Durbin had copies of my book, but they didn't accidentally get copies on my, my book. So you have to get the book, you have to get it published, you have to get it to the legislative aides who are in their 30s. Mm -hmm. So it has to be appealing to uh, younger advocates in their 30s and have credentials to older policymakers in their 60s. And it's a real strategy that it doesn't just wake, you don't just wake up and say, how, how is this going to be done? And I did most of this originally in silence without yeah. letting anybody know what I was doing. Because I thought once everybody knew what I was doing, I never lied. But I didn't say to people in these institutions, you have no idea the power of photographs and these stories once they're contextualized and people see the horror we're inflicting on children, it will change things. I didn't say that. But I was also very forthcoming in saying, we all know we can do better for these kids. And by having these stories out there, we understand that we can change policy for these kids. Mm -hmm. and, and we've seen a lot of talk lately about reforms in the prison system, uh, you know, as a whole system, a part of that subsect is juvenile justice as well. And a lot of those conversations always seem to come back to money. I know in California, you, you mentioned a stat the other day to me that a quarter of a million dollars is spent incarcerating young, young people in the state alone, that one state. And in these conversations, we talk about like, is there another way? Right? Is there, a, is there a different way to like keep children from even entering the system at all in the first place? Do you, do you hear like from families and, and from formerly incarcerated uh, youth of like, what is a better way to like not even have this pipeline that goes right from a school to a prison? It, it's all a question of money. It's all a question of how you allocate resources. You're not giving these kids service. You're offering the same resources you want your own kids to have. So if you give them better schools, more after-school programs, things that they're interested in, better teachers, better student-teacher ratios, better facilities, uh, they're going to be less attracted to other outlets that are less productive. If you give the families more support, uh, more better resources, more opportunity, more everything, just they can do more. Uh, they're not going to resort to gang life as their default. It's very simple economics, but it's the political and social will to do it. 
I don't have the answers and I never position myself as being the advocate that has them. I'm really the concierge advocate. I give the images and the stories to the agencies that are better prepared to advocate for these kids, to make these real lives. Rather mm -hmm. than, yeah, the data is critical. And when you see 2.2 million incarcerated in a, a society and we are so far uh, off the charts compared to any other Western civilization, I think we're, it's, it is shameful in the very truest sense of the word. So we can do better. And we do better by treating these kids with more respect and realizing that it, we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. when, you, when, you, when you're connecting, uh, you're playing the bridge maker essentially between resources and advocates and the political stakeholders and also the people who are in the system, the families and the youth. But I am really curious, like from your personal interactions, from your time doing all these stories, like what are the themes that seem to emerge over and over from what they're telling you? Like what are the, what are the young folks telling you that this is a common thread, this happens every generation or every 10 years or, you know, like what is not being addressed that's an ongoing issue? Lack of opportunity. There was always being able to sit at a family table, being able to, the people that have succeeded, it's always, the aberration of somebody intervening that said, mm. you know, Victor, you could do better than this. Mm -hmm. you know, you're not this person. By having these accidental interventions be commonplace, by having somebody that's an advocate for the kid so far back, not only in the kid's life, but multi-generational. Mm -hmm. You go back to the mother, the grandmother, and you say, we realize you're struggling in this world with addiction, with poverty, with a lack of housing, but you want better for your kids. You want more. How do we get there? Mm -hmm. And just multi-generational, giving them the resources and having them believe it. Yeah. In, in a way, it's kind of, um, it's a little bit like your interactions when you would sit on the floor. It's like no one's ever asked them, what do you think or what do you feel? And you walked into a room and sat down and said, can I be here? Can you share with me how you're feeling? And maybe it almost sounds like that's a little bit a part of it is like no one ever makes you part of your own story. You're always kind of thrust in another direction or something's put on to you. I'd say so. And I'd say I try to be as invisible as possible. I try to listen to these stories. And uh, my wife would shoot me, but um, more than any act in my life that gives me bliss, perhaps than the birth of my children or even grandchildren, is the act of sitting on the floor of a concrete cell and listening to these kids. It's I grew up in New York. I grew up in Brooklyn. So forgive me. Maybe I've been in California too long, but <laughs> it's really when you have gotten a kid from such a different background to trust you and tell you in reality who they are. And in some cases, you can see that wall drop. In some cases, they start crying. I don't want to re-traumatize them, but I end up crying with them because I'm an adult. They're incarcerated. They all need mental health services. They all have been abused. You can't touch them. You can't embrace them and say, it's going to be okay. And when these walls come down, uh, it's part of the pandemic tells us how much we depend on physical touch. And when that's gone, there's so little, so few vehicles to really communicate and link with these kids. And so few people do. They're just, they're bullied by society, by everybody that's telling them what to do, by their peers, by their parents, by their parents, boyfriends, girlfriends. Mm -hmm. We try to be anti-bullying uh, in terms of rhetoric, but as a society, we bully these kids. I think this is actually a good transition into uh, looking at some of your work. Um, you did prepare a slideshow for tonight. Maybe we could uh, 
fire that up and we can look through some of the stuff you've been hearing and seeing. I'm going to jam through it as fast as I can. <laughs> Take your time. Don't worry. We're not trying to jam. I really, to, I really love the conversation. I really love the talk. I really want to open up to an audience that's, that I haven't reached before. So I'm going to give you sort of like a little, usually it's about an hour. I'm going to try and blast through it in about 20 minutes and probably have half a dozen images where I stop and you'll hear the kids in their own words, which I really feel is important. Oh, that's great. Yeah. The whole idea of fake news and the photographs can lie. No, they don't lie. And then the whole idea of these voices when you hear them, it, it really, it moves me. So uh, when I photographed one isolation room, uh, someone can easily say, well, that's the exception rather than the rule. And then by proving that these rooms exist all over the country and creating a really alluring, beautiful grid, it does something. It has credentials of this is where we put kids, which is incredibly damaging. Mm -hmm. no, and how many different places are, are you visiting here? Are, are these like all over the country or? Yeah, these are, um, I've been to at least 300 different sites, interviewed over a thousand kids. Um, and I don't like to stigmatize a place because I don't want to hold the place up to shame, but this is Washington State. Mm -hmm. Sorry, but I thought I'd include something that was local. When you take a teenager and you put them in a big steel door that slams closed, and then you slam four bolts beyond that, it's horrifying to a kid. It's so damaging. So just taking a look at all of these. California, you take a kid, put them in a straitjacket, and then lock them on a bench to these rings. So think, states that you think are the most progressive aren't, and states that you think are the most conservative in terms of how they treat kids, exactly the reverse. One of the best sites that I've seen was Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And this is how I approach the kids. She's off usually, depending on the site, but sitting on the floor. And this is that first image that generated when I started realizing, realizing that these kids had a story. I'm curious, those little pieces of paper that are pinned to each door, what, what is written on those? What are those? Notes about who the kid is, what they're eating, uh, immigration status, any number of things that have to go along with the kid. So these, these notes are really meant for the people who work there, so they're not even familiar with who they're working with. They're, they're just looking at that every time as a cheat sheet. Yeah, they're numbers. Yeah. But often, to uh, not to demonize people, uh, the ideal juvenile detention center, not that it could exist, uh, but tries to move kids through as quickly as possible. Have public I safety, see. make sure that the kid is evaluated to make sure they're not prey nor predator, make sure they're not in any harm, that they, they can get the right resources they need and be just moved out and an ideal situation beyond burning these places down completely and not having them is getting them mm -hmm. in within a week so that they're not held there for any extended length of time. But I'm going to go through this quickly. Uh, Louisiana, uh, 22 kids. The detention center director holds kid. This is OPP, or, uh, Orleans Parish Prison, the juvenile wing. Uh, there was a fight the night before, so the head took away dominoes, cards, TV, books, nothing. And this is New Orleans, and the air conditioning was broken as well. And this parish prison rents out space to other parishes. So when you think about what chattel is like and what young men of color like are in terms of commodity where one parish will make money off housing others. It's pretty horrific. This is the way we have defined these kids. They're terrible gangs. Uh, these are the super predators. That was the jargon of the 90s. But in fact, these are a lot of the kids that I try to show you. These are who they are. 
incredibly fragile lives that are putting in these spaces that you can't put these kids in these spaces, yet we do. And the kid on the left uh, was from a facility where he got a fifth grader, got in a fight with another kid. Uh, the protocol of the school was to take them to the principal's office. He was waiting in the principal's office, ate a muffin on the principal's table, uh, was taken to the detention center. The director of the detention center said, can I use this photograph and she sent it to all the principals in the district and said, this is not the right space for this kid. Because when this kid is here, this kid doesn't go home until his parent can come get him. And the mother is a single parent working a job. When she leaves her job, she puts her other siblings, uh, the other children uh, at risk. And she can't get him until 6.30 and this kid is hurt by being here solve the problem within the classroom, solve the problem within the principal's office. Do not send the kid here. So that's when locally the work is able to have some impact by really making noise at a local level. Everything is local, everything is state. Uh, federal legislation actually, while it sounds impressive, means very little. That, that last one, uh, you said a fifth grader, so that's like a 12-year-old? Fifth grader on the left. He's probably 12, and some yeah. of these kids are younger. How often were you seeing people that young when you would go across the country? Not that often, but often enough. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's the norm is these kids are 16 or 17. That's mm -hmm. the majority of the population. But then there are kids that are 15, 14, 13, down to, I've met kids 10. Wow. And uh, Unit J in LA Central, which is the largest juvenile detention center, I, I photographed there a lot, has kids 10, 11, and 12. And it was full a lot. What does a 10 or a 12 year old tell you about their experience when you ask them? Like, Well, one kid, I'll show you, I'll come back to that. I'll show okay. you. Um, a picture of a kid, and I hope I'll remember. I'll come back to that. Uh, the left is Guantanamo. Uh, the right is a juvenile detention facility. Mm -hmm. So having these images mirrored, when I talk to law schools, uh, undergraduate, Georgetown, American, Penn State, you name it, I'm trying to frame the conversation for the next generation. Uh, I think that some of our political parties have done a very good job on that. And I think that's one way to look beyond yourself as a project that just exists beyond your lifetime, but creates a legacy in terms of work that you've done. So the left is a juvenile detention center. The right is Delta camp at Guantanamo. So what's the difference between the two cells? Guantanamo, where there are uh, prisoners, they're not convicts because they haven't been convicted, but there are prisoners that are held there for decades. There they have a light. There they have a window. At the juvenile detention center on the left, there's no window. It tells you something about who we are. But I'm going to have somebody else talk about who they are. I'm going to have a kid in a shelter that halfway portion between dependency and detention talk about her own experience in this next image. Forgive me, this is a kid who is in Ferguson uh, and uh, he was in an isolation wing because he had been shot about a week before. I got shot. It was on the 22nd of April. Well, they shattered my, my my thumb, because it went in my thumb and came out with my pinky. And, uh, hopefully, they took a piece of bone out of my hip. They put it in my thumb, like just like yesterday, two days ago. It's all great. It's all going great. I'm still alive, so I'm good. So when you have images like that and little stories like that, it describes so many issues, lack of prefrontal cortex development, prevalence of guns and violence, being held in isolation, so many things go on that when you have these kids tell their own stories, they're 
they have more impact. And then I like to give information instead of 10,000 word papers, but these things that are like factoids that are made for almost fortune cookie information. Every child 13 or 14 years old since the life without parole for a non-homicide has been a person of color, everyone. So then you get the buzz. You can get kids talking on social media and being able to say, you know, I heard this talk and can you believe this shit? Uh, rather than describing other larger places to go. Uh, this is in, at a, a level 12 facility. I asked the director what percentage of girls have been sexually abused when they come here. And the director looked at me and said, what percentage? Everyone. All 88 girls in our custody have been abused. And then the director said, and most of the boys, when they come through other facilities, most of the boys have been abused as well, emotionally, physically, sexually. So then you start thinking of these kids as victims rather than perpetrators. And you start thinking, how do we deal with these kids? And this is the voice of a girl that's been abused. The first time I was sexually abused was at the age of probably around five. They were with my mother, and I tried to tell her a few times, and she said I, I didn't know what I was talking about. I was too little. And when I finally gave, the time when I actually finally gave up on trying to get to talk to her about it was when uh, one of her boyfriends, after having raped me, left the room and slammed the door so hard that it didn't actually close. It kind of like swung back open. And I saw her sitting on the couch across from the doorway. And she looked at me and smiled, and I knew the whole time that she could hear me screaming. These voices have authority. And you look at kids this age, and I'm trying to create images that haunt you, that you, it'll make you lose the same sleep that I lose. So when you look at this kid, and then you hear a girl talking. I can't lay down, gotta sit up. I can lay down at 7.30. They wake me up at 6 o'clock. If they see us laying down or falling asleep, then I take our mattress and covers. And my back really hurts. So this is a facility that was primarily white girls, and this was one of the only African-American girls. And the director said she was being held for 72 hours for intimidating the other girls. So I can't say to the director, really, she's the African-American girl in the group and she's intimidating all the other white girls as opposed to feeling isolated. So I have to talk football to the director. I have to talk about local whiskeys or beers. And then I have to slip in using phrases like, have you considered what she feels like? Is institutions are hoarders of bad practices. So why are you saying she can't lie down on a mattress during the day when she has nothing else to do and her back really hurts? What's the point here? So you can't scold people. You have to get them to buy in. And you have to give them the data of like, you know, Latino youth are four times more likely uh, to receive an adult sentence for the same crime as white children and African-American youth are nine times more likely. And then you slip in the data like that and you show these kids and then you figure out so many different, I've photographed so many different kids that I have to start having them work as co-conspirators to help me obscure their faces because part of the MOUs that I use to get in is saying, I'm not gonna identify these kids. I'm going to obscure these faces and then the kids will buy in and I'll say, help me figure out how to not show your face. And then by mm. doing this, it generalizes them and also helps imply a sense of shame that they have. But then when you also give data of when you can predict that an infant boy of color in a particular zip code is more likely to go to prison than to college, it's our fault more than his. And these zip codes exist. And these infant children, it's a horrific statistic. And then I'll, I'm just gonna give you a little background. I did all of this very much in secret for about five years. And then the publisher, Rick MacArthur, who did the introduction to architecture of authority, the publisher of Harper said, I'll give you as much space, as much time, 
Uh, you really, you can write anything you want, you do it. But these kids deserve this attention now. You can't be a Winnebago and have stickers from 50 states on it. You really have to get it out now. And once this material got out, it really got out. This is a subcommittee hearing. This is a kid where I started talking about how lonely these kids are and how they really demand just a, a feeling rather than demonizing them. When you look at these kids, from the point of view of these kids, you look across a table and who are these kids facing all the time? They're facing people that are not of this world that are telling them what to do and making demands that they're not familiar with. Okay, this is the kid from uh, Unit J. I, I did remember him. And I, would, I watched him grow up here. And I would say, are you back here? And he said, no, I never left. Or else I would say, are you still here? He said, no, I'm back. And I'd say, what are you in for now? And it was always Grand Theft Auto. And I would say, where did you learn how to drive? We would say, from stealing cars. He said, you can't reach the pedals. How do you do it? He said, I could reach the pedals. Where do you go? I don't know. I can't read. When do you stop? When the police stop me or when I run out of gas? I said, why do you do it? And he said, man, I'm from Watts. And it was so, such the existential answer of like, what of this don't you get? I'm from Watts. I've got nowhere to go. I've got nothing to do. I've got nothing. Why would I not? steal a car? Why would this not be my home? And then I photographed his home, and that's where he lives. This is his mother. Uh, she works at, as a crossing guard. Uh, next to his house was a food land, and in the parking lot of food land where there was no car older than, uh, there was no car newer than at least 15 years old, and there were probably a dozen adults lined up next to the food land, which was Popeye's chicken as well. And they were in wheelchairs and had legs amputated because of diabetes, because of gunshots. Why not steal cars when this is your environment? Uh, this is a young woman that was held in a facility and she had been in solitary confinement for weeks. And this was the blood on the wall where she beat her head on the wall. And there was just a line of red around the wall. How do you do that? How do you let this exist as a society? And this goes from kids, and then it also I'm gonna flip over to adults that are juvie lifers that are sentenced as children. My dad, um, from what I understand, he's dead, but he wasn't a part of my life growing up. Yeah, I've been here since I was 17. I think my stepfather was a functional alcoholic for the first uh, probably 12 years of my life. I'd go to school every day, trying to make ends meet, help my mother out to pay the bills. There was no father big in the house, and I feel like she needed help. So I can say probably to like the age 10 or 11. Um, my mom and dad like hold used to have crack house parties, so we pretty much like raised ourselves, me and my brothers. Uh, my mother was 15 years old. She had me. Uh, she had already had a son before me. My oldest brother was a year older than I am. So a place where you have to survive. You don't really thrive there. You just survive. I've been incarcerated 44 years. I'm 15 years old when I committed that crime. Yeah. I believe that we all forgot. All day they went, what, all day we don't want to die. And he put some whiskey in a little shot glass for me. And he let me drink it and then he molested me. And I just, I always remember that because it, it, it shut me up. Five. I needed help. I just wanted a place to belong. See that? My opinion of the place is a walking graveyard. That's all it is. They're saying UCI is a walking grave. I just come here to die. Old people come to die. So this gives you an understanding of who these people are. This is uh, Joe Ligon, who's 
incarcerated outside of Philadelphia in Phoenix. That's the name of the institution. He was arrested in 1953 when Eisenhower was in his first term. Granted, the crime he was accused of, which he says he didn't commit, but, and the circumstances in 53 were beyond bizarre, but it's 2020 and he's still being held and he's 82 years old with no subsequent violations within prison. What sense does this make? And then I've been photographing and interviewing people that are trying to get out through parole. I've gone to parole hearings. I share my work with other artists to see what can be done in terms of this message getting out. I've created different books, which are, many of them are self-published. I did a dozen books before I did this whole series. And when I went to try and get this published, every publisher I worked with said, books on social justice do not make money. We're not going to do it. And then I just said, well, I'm going to self-publish it. And the first edition of Juvenile Justice sold out within six months. And I did a second printing. And that sold out. And it got to the right people. The audience was really critical. Twitter, uh, Facebook, air, social media, just trying to get to different audiences at different times. Uh, this is at the Armory, dance performances. And then uh, this is part of a project I did with uh, Juvie Talk of having juvietalk.com, which is a site where junior high and high school kids can go and very much like vagina monologues, can create their own narrative within a classroom. And I'll give you a really brief little glimpse of it when it was done at Rhode Island School of Design. No one has ever visited me. No one visits. I have gotten any of those here. Nobody visits. None of those friends come to visit here when I need them. They disappear. No one. No one Social services brings my baby. I've been here a month. I'm in the room for 23 hours. I want to go through things quickly and I want to wrap up in the next like seven minutes so we have more of a conversation. Uh, this is a kid who was really glorious. A thousand kids that I met. This is a mugshot when he was originally incarcerated. Uh, his mother was a crack addict. Um, the circumstances of how he was incarcerated, he ran away from home, caught up with a the gang. They try to convict him as an adult. And I intervened. He was held four and a half years when I met him, and he wasn't adjudicated. And I just said, that's not possible. And he said, yeah. And then I spoke to the, the head of defense in Miami-Dade. And she said, multiple state's attorneys, multiple co-defendants. Yeah, it's a problem. I flew to Miami several times, met him several times, both incarcerated. And when he finally got out, very talented kid, had everything going for him. And then this is a medical examiner report that said he died of natural causes at about 23. These are tragic stories. So many of these things have no, no happy endings. But this is a kid from Miami Gardens, Liberty City. And you look at these places, the top is the Indiana State Fair. And the bottom is the, uh, in Miami, their wall of shame. And what it is, is by the accident of the uterus that issues you, you have young women uh, white from the Midwest. They're going to have 2.2 children. They're going to have an average income of six figures. Their kids are going to go to school. And you look at the bottom, and uh, these are kids that they show when they put ankle monitors on their legs. The words expired are on these like 42 photocopies. And these are kids that have died from gunshot wounds within two or three years from being released from Miami-Dade or TGK or these facilities. And this is the graduation wall for them. So this very much goes along with, like from the same zip code, from who you are, it defines what you're going to be. How do we change something as basic as this? I don't really know, but 
I put up work in the walls of different uh, community colleges, universities, and it's like Willie Sutton says, why, do I why would I rather have it up here than in the art galleries? It's like, this is where the money is. These are where the kids are. These are where the community is. These are where the policymakers of the future are going to be existing. So you want this as part of the discussion. While they're having a cup of coffee, while they're having a break, I want these images to be uh, permeating through their lives. I do it as billboards. I put it up, this is Bloomington, Indiana in City Hall, where it just goes up to the city council meeting and the, on a very local basis, people have to confront it on the way up to a meeting room. Uh, this is in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, where there was a scandal of Kids for Cash, where two judges were convicted of sending kids, juveniles, to juvenile detention centers that they owned. And both of these judges are now doing time. But you had to walk. These people are very enlightened at this point, or else they have the moral compass to say, yeah, we want this exhibition right in the gut of where these offenses took place, right next to the offices of the district attorneys. The work is up at the EJI, so Brian Stevenson, who's spectacular, is there with Oprah talking about the work and these images. They become part of the conversation, part of the discourse. When I talked to Terrence Graham, I spoke to his attorney, and the attorney said, oh, well, Terrence is great, and I've been in great contact with Terrence. He's a fascinating young man. Well, he's 35 now. But uh, Brian Gowdy, who was the attorney, said, oh, you have to know about Christian Martinez. After Terrence's case, another case that I helped out in involved a 12-year-old that was uh, accused of uh, murder here in Duval County. And he was indicted by, by the grand jury and was facing, this was pre-Miller, and so it was post-Graham, pre-Miller, so he was facing a mandatory life without parole. His name was Christian Fernandez, and Christian's now 17, but you know, when Christian was 12, uh, the, way, the way I put it to people was by the time he was 12, he, uh, he had a father who completely abandoned him and no part in his life. He had a stepfather that abused him physically and that committed suicide in front of him. Um, he had a mother who was only 12 when she had him and she was wholly ill-equipped to raise him. Um, you had DCF come in and investigate and do nothing about the situation. And the result of this whole environment that was created by all these adults was that Christian was, uh, you know, left at home with his younger siblings one day, and and uh, his two-year-old sibling unfortunately died. You know, he was supposed to be looking after all these younger siblings at age twelve. And I say, you know, all these people have a part to play in this. His father who was absent, his stepfather who abused him and committed suicide in front of him, his mother who did, you know, really nothing to rectify the situation, the Department of Children and Families that overlooked all this and messed up. And of all those people who made a mistake, there's only one facing a life without parole sentence, and that's the 12-year-old kid. So you look at that and you think, rather than having the child accountable to society and its institutions and accusing the child of failure, how do you turn that around and have society and its institutions accountable to the child. And that's the way the world starts to really change. These are social media. Uh, my email is going to be available for all of you. Uh, anybody that wants to contact me, I'm pretty surgical in my emails and I'll be happy to respond pretty quickly. Now, that's what I got. And that's the briefest presentation. And I think I'm still within the boundaries of allow us allowing us some time to have more of a conversation, which I certainly would enjoy. Absolutely. Thank you, Richard, for walking us through that. That last clip, that was, um, you know, it gets to the heart of how we talk about these issues from time to time. Like it, it is 
it is never presented the way you just did, that society has failed the child, that it's always the child is a victim of all their circumstances, but like what is our role in all this as a society? And this gets back to the stakeholders that you talk to, this gets back to the taxpayers that talk about how their money should be spent. This also goes right to today where we talk about defunding police and you know, re-examining criminal justice. It's all tied together and it really asks that bigger question, right? What is society's role in all this? You know, when you when you talk to the youth and you're talking to the stakeholders, like, is there, I know there's no silver bullets for these kind of things, but like, are there things that we're not doing today that we should be thinking about? And what are people telling you? There are, there's so many things that, but I exist as an artist, activist, uh, I'm engaged. And I have every credential as a human being to be part of it, but I don't have the training in terms of, what policies can be implemented? How do you frame a conversation that's civil where you say, okay, look, um, I will admit we have other issues we're dealing with, but when it comes to these kids, there's something we can agree on and it can be on the most basic level. When you have the JCOs, the corrections officers, and Yes, I've interviewed them. Yes, I photographed them. Yes, I try to find out their stories, sometimes as a vehicle to get to the kids but also and gain credentials with them. But also, I'm by nature a very curious person. And when you have these people that may have limited opportunities as jailers, as well as those that are incarcerated, what happens if you say, look, we're going to teach these kids coding, we're going to teach them poetry, we're going to teach them dance, and we're going to invite everybody, staff, as well as those that are incarcerated, to be a participant. And nobody's going to lose respect, and nobody, the, the safety of the institution won't be jeopardized. But let's try something about getting everybody engaged. What happens then? We're just so much creatures of are hoarders of these bad habits, it seems almost impossible to break. And we do it because it's, that's the way it's been done before. Policy, precedent, until it becomes unprecedented. And the law is based on precedent. The role of the artist is to do things that are unprecedented. So that's my job to get in there and do things and have people rethink what we're doing. Uh, Richard, thank you for spending some time with me. And Robert, thank you for uh, inviting me out to hang out with you guys. Um, unfortunately, because of COVID, we all can't be in the same room together. But it's uh, this is a nice alternative to all that. And it's nice to spend an evening with you guys. So thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to this Centrum podcast. The creator and host of Communiversity is Robert Berman, Centrum's executive director. Centrum podcasts are produced by Taven Dotson, Owen Rowe, and Holly Miller. Our executive producer is Joe Gillard. With gratitude and respect, we acknowledge that we broadcast from the traditional lands of the Coast Salish peoples, from the place known by the Sklalem people as Katai, and today called Port Townsend, Washington. Centrum programs are based at Fort Wharton State Park in Port Townsend. Centrum was founded in 1973 to foster creative arts experiences that change lives and is dedicated to building a world of greater inclusion through the arts. Other Centrum podcasts include music from the Centrum archives, interviews with teaching artists, and readings from the Port Townsend Writers' Conference. To subscribe to any of our podcasts or to support or participate in Centrum programs, visit our website at centrum.org. Thank you for listening. This podcast is copyright 2020 Centrum Foundation.